I am really thrilled that I have the pleasure for the next few minutes to speak with author Tim Geel about a tremendously interesting new book called Stanley, The Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer, Henry Morton Stanley. And uh, Tim Geel has two other fine biographies to his credit, uh, one of them called Livingston, the other Baden-Powell, founder of the Boy Scouts. Uh, these books, like this one, published by Yale University Press. And our author, who makes his home in London, joins us via the telephone today to uh, talk about uh, the uh, very interesting work that he has done to help us understand one of the most misunderstood figures in recent history, explorer Henry Morton Stanley, uh, who came to be the, the subject of, uh, of great disdain uh, and to some extent even, even, even ridicule for uh, some of what he undertook, uh, he and so many explorers of his generation uh, piercing into the continent of, of Africa. And uh, a grave injustice has been done to Henry Morton Stanley over the years, and some of that injustice righted in this very, very good book, again called Stanley, The Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer. And Tim Geel, we welcome you to the morning show. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you so much. Um, I think we need to begin, first of all, with uh, the work that you did on this previous biography of, uh, of Mr. Livingston. Uh, of of when that occurred and, and how that occurred, because, of course, that eventually leads into the writing of this book about this other great explorer. Tell us first, briefly, your connection with Mr. Livingston. What happened was that um, before I went up um, to university, um, I had nine months to spare, and I hitchhiked across Africa from Cairo to Johannesburg. And... This is in 1963, a very long time ago, when I was 17. And it was an epoch-making journey for me, not because it was a particularly daring enterprise. I mean, I, I never really felt that I was in very great danger. Um, the vehicle in which I, um, I was traveling did break down several occasions. Um, but I never felt that we would never get it fixed or that I would starve or die of dehydration or any of the things that can happen to you in a wild country. Um, but what I did think as I was traveling along was looking at these tiny tracks that vanished into the bush on either side or into even into the jungle um, was that 110 years earlier men like Livingston and Stanley were actually on their own feet not in a vehicle with a comfortable enough amount of food and um, medicines against malaria but on their feet with virtually no medicines with no maps no roads and no beasts of burden because beasts of burden died thanks to the tsetse fly were actually going onto those roads, those little tracks rather, which if I were to have gone down, instead of um, passing along in my comfortable vehicle, I would have been dead within a few days. Uh, my water would have run out, my food would have run out, and if in fact um, a wild beast didn't get me, I'd suffer from heat exhaustion or something like that. And it was just this thought when I got back to England and went on to university that remained with me, that these remarkable people traveled thousands of miles into a continent where nothing was known and whole expeditions could perish. What bravery, hmm. what daring. I love how you say it at one point. I reminded myself that the Victorian explorers had possessed 
none of uh, these these different uh, modern conveniences like insect repellent creams and mosquito netting and so on. And they yet cross the entire continent, not on known roads and tracks, but through virgin bush and jungle and along those dangerously elusive vanishing paths that I would never consider using unless riding in a sturdy vehicle with someone who knew the area well. I mean, you are so right that Mm. we do not stop to ponder uh, with enough profundity just what they were doing, uh, the the, the peril in in which they found themselves. I think that's right. I mean, Livingston, for example, Livingston started his life as a medical missionary down in southern Africa. But um, it's a very difficult story, the story of Jesus, to tell people who have never heard it before, particularly as Jesus is white and he was born um, in what they would describe as an animal shed. Um, We rather romanticize the origins um, um, of his birth and everything. But for them, never having heard the story, Livingston had a lot of trouble conveying it to them, and he failed. His only convert, who was the chief of the tribe, which was a great achievement to have made him a convert at all, lapsed after a short time, and Livingston then went off north, hoping to open up Africa to other influences, namely traders. And he hoped that if trade came to Africa, the Africans themselves would see what Western society could manage, and their own society would change. In due course, they would get sort of forms of employment, and they would get wages, and this would produce taxation money, which in turn would enable schools to be built and hospitals and roads, etc., he imagined Africa developing in that way, and his exploration was all addressed to this purpose. Hmm. So he went along the Zambezi River, hoping that it would be a navigable highway for ships to come far into the interior. Unfortunately, there were all sorts of rapids on it, and there was, of course, the Victoria Falls, uh, probably the biggest waterfall in the world. And he found that um, there were very, very few healthy regions. So he became more once he had discovered that Africa was not going to be a picnic in that way, he became more obsessed, really, with actually finding out the mysteries of the African continent, like where the Nile and the Congo rose. And so at the time that Stanley found him, years later, in 1870, Livingston was an explorer, pure and simple, really. Hmm. And he was trying to find out what an enormous river that he was um, working on in the center of Africa, called he called it the Lualaba, where it went to. Um, and that was about that that period. So I was very interested in him. And while I was um, writing Livingston's life, I came across Stanley, of course, and knew Stanley's reputation as rather a brute. But it just did occur to me when I read the letters that Stanley had written to Livingston's son-in-law that he was a remarkably unusual brute in that he was very unconfident. He would often ask advice about how to approach women, um, what sort of things to say. He was worried about all sorts of things to do with social etiquette. And he had really little confidence indeed. And it was then that I really became um, determined that one day this man who had the reputation of being an iron man and totally self-confident and so forth, that I should really try to get inside him. Hmm. So, j- just so our listeners understand, the the story you told of hitchhiking across uh, uh, Egypt was in 1963, and I believe Absolutely. it's it's about a decade or so after that, I think, that uh, you found the opportunity then 
to write about uh, Dr. Livingston. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's about that, I suppose. Yes, it's, it's, it's perhaps even a little bit sooner than that. I was, I was, yes, no, it's about a decade. You're absolutely right. I wrote it when I was in my mid to late 20s. That's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, along the way, realizing, of course, that there was this other figure in the minds of so many paired with Dr. Livingston who deserved uh, to be, uh, whose life... D- uh, deserved exploration as well, and that, of course, is then the book which we hold in our hands: Stanley, the Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer. Let's step back for a moment and talk more generally about this whole generation of British explorers, uh, particularly those in in the nineteenth century who were uh, braving the the the, uh, the unknown uh, regions of of, of the African continent. Mm. One thing you say in your introduction is that that for us now, it is very hard to fully understand the grip which these kind of exploits had uh, on the public imagination of, of Europeans and, and Americans. Talk for a moment about what you think was going on here. Well, I think that your own um, continent of America is a terribly good example of what as the pioneers pressed on ever westward, there is a kind of romance in a great movement across a continent that's very little known about and then living in quite a rough way and making your own way. If you want to cut down a tree, you cut it down. There's nobody who's going to be telling you that. There are no policemen around the corner. It's a kind of sort of wild environment, which is both dangerous and very, very exciting um, because you don't know what the country is going to produce in terms of minerals. You know, you may come across something extraordinarily valuable or whatever. Well, Africa is that plus 20, because Africa almost certainly has gold and all these things and diamonds and whatever. You know this. It's sort of like some fictional Shangri-La almost, but it's also intensely dangerous. Your chances of dying um, of malaria or an absolute host of illnesses, I won't even bother to describe them all, because there's been a slave trade on both sides of the continent, it's also incredibly dangerous because many Africans are very suspicious of strangers and they have every reason to be. And so anybody who tries to come through the country is potentially in danger of being killed by them. And then there are the natural barriers of jungle and everything. Now, we take for granted the fact that one can look at a map of Africa and see two great lakes in the north of the country and one sees a great river curling to the left then one sees how the Nile goes down the Sudan, and um, we know more or less where its sources are, most of us anyway. But, of course, there was a time in the 1870s when Stanley and Livingston were at work when there was nothing in the middle at all. The Great Lakes had been visited once when Stanley went to Africa in, um, in 1870, and on neither occasion did the person who found them actually sail round them. Nobody knew what their relationship for sure was with the Nile, and nobody had the faintest idea about where the Congo rose or what its shape would be. So these were just dots on the map. And there was a kind of intense fascination with the heart of Africa, this sort of land which nobody knew anything about. And mm. you would obviously become very famous if you were the one who managed to penetrate it. You said for a century, this huge blank in the center of the map of Africa had exercised a grail-like fascination throughout Europe. I I love the way you put that. And of course, you say finally that space was filled in largely thanks to this one stupendous journey by this uh, uh, Henry Morton Stanley. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's so ironic, isn't it, that he's yeah. remembered for a sentence, Absolutely. Dr. Livingston, I presume, which I'm sure he never spoke. <laughs> um, and yet this enormous and fantastic journey in which um, he risked everything um, is not remembered. But I think in a way, before mentioning this, I'd like to just say a little bit about the extraordinary fact that he was ever there at all to undertake this journey. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about somebody who had a, had a sort of background so disastrous that you would think it impossible that they would ever achieve anything in life. Stanley was not just rejected by his mother at birth, but rejected by his father too. And he then had some years with his grandfather, who was not always attentive to him and was quite strict. And he lived in a house with two uncles, two of this man's children, um, who didn't like him, frankly. And one of our partners definitely didn't like him. And then his only friend in the world, the grandfather, dropped dead when he was five and a half. And Stanley was completely on his own. He was put into a workhouse by his uncles where he was for nine years. And a workhouse at this date is so horrendous. Your clothes are taken away when you go in. You're given a kind of uniform made out of coarse flannel. And your hair is cut short. And you are at the bottom of the social heap in a cruelly snobbish society, so that you spend the rest of your life always wondering where you fit in, whether you deserve to be accepted into a higher realm of society. And so when you think about this, that, that, that this young man who started so disadvantageously should ever have undertaken a great expedition, costing what was then about you know twelve thousand pounds sterling, which would be millions of dollars today, perhaps nine, ten million dollars to actually get going. Um, it was grossly unlikely that that would ever have happened. Hmm. It is uh, it is amazing. I mean, as as you say, the 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 beginning of his life was such an unlikely one for what was to follow. Hmm. I mean. Uh, it, it is it is hard to imagine uh, a, a more powerful disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. But he owed everything you see to America. One day when he was in Liverpool, staying with an aunt and uncle and working as a butcher's boy, taking meat to the Liverpool docks, um, his suit had recently been taken and pawned by them. His only money had been taken away by his relations, who were so poor they could hardly feed themselves. And as he delivered this meat to this American packet ship, he decided... You know, I ought to go. I, I, I cannot stay here anymore as a burden to these people. So considering that he had nothing except the clothes he stood up in, he would have no contacts, nobody he knew at all. It was a very brave decision, really, to decide to emigrate at that moment when still just under the age of 18. Um, and when he arrived in New Orleans, he, um, he was in a society for the first time where people didn't ask you where you came from. Nobody was going to worry if he'd been in a workhouse or anything because 70% of the population were immigrants and they all were expected to work and if you worked well, um, you got on and it was as simple as that. Nobody was going to hold you back because of who you were like would happen in England. Hmm. And you write of of the uh, incredible transformation which occurs between, let's see, he would have been 18, I think, mm. when he arrived in America. Mm. He is 24 when he's mm. about then to, uh, as you say, depart for a life dedicated to risk-taking. Mm. And in yeah. those years, 
he experienced so much that mm. shaped the explorer that uh, mm. he was about to be. Uh, tell our listeners the most important moments in, in these formative years for Stanley. I think possibly, I mean, there are all sorts of different moments, but I, I think the fact that he decided that he was going to become an American, he was going to assume an American accent, and he was going to take the name of an American man who he'd never met, but he liked the name. Um, he was previously thought to have been adopted by this person, but this is completely untrue. Stanley, as it were, hijacked this man's name, and he decided he would be an American, and he, for, for the rest of his life he spoke with an American accent. And indeed, for part of his life, he actually became an American citizen. Um, but there were costs to this, um, and that they, they began to hit him almost at once because the Civil War broke out, and he found all the young men in the store that he was working in um, volunteered, and he was sent women's clothing when he didn't, and so he decided he'd better fight too. He was captured, he was imprisoned in a terrible camp, near um, Chicago called Camp Douglas, where people were dying like flies of typhoid and cholera. And he was given the chance to get out alive by the commandant, who said, if you were prepared to fight for the North, you can be free, um, and you can go and fight for us. And so he took that opportunity. And fairly shortly after he got out, um, he in fact deserted. Um, he was prepared to take huge risks. If he'd been caught, he might have been hanged or shot. Um, so he then did a variety of different jobs. He, he worked on um, Mississippi riverboats. He worked as a gold prospector. He worked for a judge in New York. Um, he, 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 he worked for a printer. He, he was um, all the time developing himself as a journalist, uh, in, inventing little stories and sending them off to small local papers and getting things published. And in 1867, um, when he was 26, he had his first huge break, which was that he got a job on the Missouri Democrat as a reporter on the Indian Wars in Nebraska. And these wars were General Hancock's campaign against the Kiowa and the Comanche. Um, and he was very successful at this. He wrote in a very direct and vibrant way about scalpings and attacks on trains. And he wrote about Wild Bill Hickok, and asked him extraordinary questions like, Wild Bill, how many men did you kill in the last six months? Stuff like this. It was amazing that he dared to do it. Um, and he published a large number of these pieces. And he was able, the following year, at the age of 27, to go and meet a young man who was the same age as himself, but with an income of several million dollars a year, called James Gordon Bennett, Jr., who owned the New York Herald, America's best-selling newspaper and he was able to make him a proposition. So when one thinks about it, this is an astonishing um, period of time between the ages. It's exactly, as you said, 10 years that he is a, a, a proper journalist with a salary hmm. and a very responsible position. I think an interesting moment is when you, uh, you tell us about December 16th, 1867, mm. when you say, showing extraordinary self-belief uh, Henry entered the offices of America's most famous newspaper, and that's, of course, the New York Herald. And, uh, and I mean, this is, a, in some respects, I suppose, a fairly minor and yet seems to me significant example of something in his personality that that allowed him to uh, to go where, in a sense, 
he maybe had no business going, <laughs> or or uh, where where someone else uh, might might have been inclined to uh, shrink back uh, in, uh, in in hesitancy. Somehow that that was something he was able to uh, surmount, and that has a lot to do with what he ultimately went on to accomplish. I think that's right. He had this kind of inner belief, which is so hard to understand quite where it came from or how he had it because of this terrible emotional battering he had from the rejections he had early. And yet there was in him, he, he wrote to an early girlfriend, a most extraordinarily um, strange letter in which he compares himself to Caesar. He said, you know, Caesar might have said... Um, this body carries Caesar and all his fortunes, but I will say the same. This body carries Stanley and all his. You know, he'd not achieved anything at that date. But inside this, you know, this small, not particularly handsome man at this date, he was inclined to getting overweight. His, his, um, his, his skin tended to be a little sort of florid. Um, and yet he had this sense of himself everything that had happened to him, that he was going to make a mark on history. Hmm. You know, this is as good a time to to mention that the, the, the cover photograph of your book, I think, is so extraordinary. It is a photograph of Stanley, and next to him appears to be a, a young boy from, from Africa. Absolutely. And um, Stanley is not <laughs> a particularly imposing-looking figure here. He looks kind of somehow short and and in some ways kind of unassuming and i mean just just at a glance we do not immediately think this is somebody formidable this is somebody who was so easily cut out to uh to uh to explore the the most dangerous continent on earth uh and yet that's what he did yeah he's he's standing next to um, a little lad called kalulu who he who he'd rescued he was a slave and he um he 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 paid for his freedom and, and took him with him as a servant. He died rather sadly um, during one of his great expeditions. Um, the expression on Stanley's face in this photograph is fascinating. It's both vulnerable and somehow there is a little anger in it too. It's, it's, a, it's a strange um, but nevertheless typical expression. There's a sort of stubbornness, but at the same time there is great unhappiness and vulnerability in the face as well. Um, and all this was true. He felt that he had to achieve things to justify his existence, almost. He was going to do something remarkable. He was going to show everybody, you know, that he, w- he wasn't the person who ought to have been given away by his parents. He should never have been a thrown-away child. In a way, his, his career was like a great gauntlet thrown down to the fate that he'd been obliged to suffer. To really demonstrate what a terrible mistake Absolutely. had been made. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that there was that iron resolution that he was going to um, be somebody who everybody would have to reckon with, that he would do something so extraordinary hmm. that even the world would look round. And of course, he, uh, he comes along at a time when uh, there is this fascination with exploration. You say at one point uh, in the book, that uh, at this moment in the 19th century, the world had not yet been shrunk by the automobile and the aeroplane, and the planet's remotest places seemed as inaccessible as the stars, and that we can probably think of those early explorers 
in the same way that we viewed the Apollo astronauts of, of, the, of the 20th century. I think it's a good analogy. I think this is exactly it, that they had a terrific romance to them. Um, I mean, somebody like Livingston was also a great figure of fascination. When Stanley, he had, when Stanley went and persuaded Mr. Bennett that it would be a great scoop if he could find him, it, would have, it was obviously a brilliant idea. It was Stanley's idea, which I say for the first time. He gave it to Bennett in the past because he didn't want anybody to say, you made your career on Livingston's back. He wanted it to be treated just as an ordinary journalistic mission rather than a, a, than a route plan for him to become famous. Because, of course, it was a route plan for him to become famous. And he had the common sense to realize that it would be the greatest journalistic scoop of the century. Absolutely. It's so unlikely, you see, that you managed to find him in the first place. I mean, in, in all of that continent. Absolutely. Um, Livingston was so remarkable as a human being that here was somebody um, who felt that he could end the Arab slave trade by simply being there, by reporting on it, um, by writing um, dispatches which were then sent home, by simply writing a diary that would one way, one way or another, when he died, be published, and that all the infamy of these people would be revealed. And he had a, a great love of Africa and of Africans, which was undoubtedly so. And Stanley, when he met him, the impact on this man, who was prepared to give up his life to finish his geographical task, um, which would one day change Africa, Stanley was sure, was, was overwhelming on Stanley. Um, Stanley, of course, was a, a young man who had never had a father. And to be with this remarkable person, um, who had actually recently lost a son who died in the American Civil War. Um, he had left England and, and, and gone to live in America. Um, was a terrific experience for Livingston, too, to, to have this. He said that Stanley was, came like a son and, and treated him as a son should have done. Of course, none of Livingston's sons did ever come near him once um, he went back to Africa. Hmm. We're speaking with Tim Geale, and we're talking about his incredible book called Stanley, the impossible life of Africa's greatest explorer, namely Henry Morton Stanley. And uh, we are at that, uh, that moment in, in the story uh, in which uh, Stanley and Livingston's uh, roads are, are, are about to intersect in the heart of what was known then as uh, the, uh, the Dark Continent. Um, tell us a, a moment about... Uh, Dr. Livingston, uh, and 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 the, the, and what drew him initially to Africa, I believe, in in, in 1841. Well, originally Livingston wanted to go to be a medical missionary and to be a, con- a you know a con- conventional doctor and missionary in a small African community, but because he found that so incredibly difficult and realized that you only have one life that he could make, say, 10 converts and take his whole life doing it. And it was just, you know, he'd been trained to an amazing extent and everything, and it seemed that he had just more in him. He couldn't believe that God had had such a limited purpose for him. And that sent him off to try to find out where the rivers went to and what what could be done to try to open up Africa. He was endlessly thinking of this. And this, in a sense, was the message that he inspired Stanley with, that Africa had to be opened up to the world. And the reason that it had to be opened up to the world was because the East African slave trade, by this time, was removing hundreds of thousands of people per year to Arabia and the Gulf in slave dyes. They were actually 
already the Arab slave traders had reached the upper Congo, they'd reached Lake Victoria, they'd reached um, Lake Tanganyika and Lake Nyasa, and they were um, affecting the entire interior of Africa, which was becoming um, a mass of small petty wars and so forth caused by this um, disastrous trade. Mm. Um, So when Stanley went back to Africa and he was thinking he wanted to continue Livingston's work, Livingston died a year after Stanley left him um, on what would turn out to be the Upper Congo. Stanley's desire to go and find the geographical mystery and to, as an explorer, succeed in that way was also part of a wider idea um, which was that he hoped that he would be able to change Africa in the way that Livingston had seen it. Right. We, of course, today have less sympathy with the advantages of being opened up to um, our sort of civilization. But at this time, of course, the Victorians had no conception of the idea that one day an industrial society might endanger the future of the planet or any of the things that we now know. At that time, they simply thought that they would bring easier lives to people, more choices for things for them to do, um, societies where their health care could be better and where they could be more educated and so on. It's, of course, so ironic given that, uh, in fact, uh, a lot of injustice and misery ultimately seems to be visited upon the African continent uh, in such sharp contrast to Livingston's vision. I think you make another interesting point, too, that that when Livingston made his journey, and of course others attempting jer- such journeys into, into Africa at the time, you said that the, the geography of, of Central Africa was as much a mystery to Europeans as it had been to the Greeks and Romans 2,000 years earlier. I mean, it is so interesting to think about for such a long time uh, that this continent was indeed shrouded in mystery, and that f- for those who explored it, they seemed so taken by romantic longings that were really at odds with actually the brutal reality of just how difficult a continent it was to explore. I think you had to have that in order to be prepared to, um, to actually go for it, to, to be prepared to put your life on the line. I think it helped, obviously, if like Livingston you believed that God had sent you, or like Stanley, you had a kind of mission. He once said, I wasn't... Um, I, I, I didn't get my life to be um, to be happy. I came for a special task. Um, and in a way, that was how he saw himself. So when he sat out with 228 people from Zanzibar um, in 1874 um, to try to solve the mystery of the Nile and the Congo, hmm. um, he, was, he was prepared for anything, and he, he took it on gladly. All his white companions died. Um, when he went, for example to um, Lake Victoria to sail around it. This is the biggest lake in Africa. It, about 1,200 miles would take you around it. Um, he would have to go in a tiny boat with 11 people. Now, he'd been attacked by a tribe before he arrived there and had lost 22 people. And he discovered that there were slave dives on this lake and that the people were very hostile. But he still he didn't tell him, you know, hey, I shouldn't be going. <laughs> you know, maybe somebody else ought to map this lake and find out if it's one lake or several. He just went and did it. And similarly, um, with Lake Tanganyika, um, he did exactly the same. And then after circumnavigating, sailing around these lakes and, in, and determining whether they had a relationship, they didn't. And then determining what happened to the water flowing out of the western side 
of Lake Tanganyika, whether it ever had any connection ultimately with the Nile. So he went down to the river that Livingston had died on and started following it north. And he followed this river all the way to the coast, which was 1,800 miles through two sets of the worst rapids almost anywhere on earth, um, and through tribes who were, frankly, cannibals um, and incredibly dangerous people to offend in any way. And so that at the end, his own um, health was almost broken in a way. And he had lost, as I said, half of those 228 men and all the three white men. But I want to try and sort of give you an idea of him. Um, he, he wrote during the course of this time when he was in such terrible physical trouble, this poor body of mine has suffered terribly. It has been pained, wearied, and sickened, and has well nigh sunk under the task imposed on it. But this was but a small portion of myself. My real self lay darkly encased and was ever too haughty and soaring for such miserable environments as the body that encumbered it daily. It's almost mystical that Stanley had this vision of himself somewhere else. You know, he wasn't this poor creature losing all his strength and weight. He was somebody who could really achieve the impossible. Mm. Um, and it's a, a, a brilliant thing that he wrote this when he was near the end of the journey and mm. when so many of his people um, were dying and the whole thing looked completely hopeless. Right, and it, it may have in some way uh, made the difference between him exactly. somehow giving up and pressing on. Absolutely, because he's so nearly, all, the entire expedition almost starved at the end because they didn't have the right trade goods to buy food. Um, and so they were really in a terrible position. They mm. couldn't, you can't steal food from African tribes, or you're very unwise to, because you would get a great number of enemies in the, on the path ahead. You know, the news of what you've done would pass 50, 60 miles ahead of you, wherever you went, and people would just leave their villages and take the food with them. I'm trying to remember, is this a point in the book when you talk about how, for instance, they had fabrics with them, but they were English fabrics that that these particular Africans had absolutely no interest no, in? No, no, no. They wanted Portuguese fabric. Yes, absolutely. They didn't care um, about what they had. That's it. Um, hmm. So they were completely helpless, really, and they were living on sort of ground nuts and a few... Um, any animals that they could shoot, um, which at this particular time was very difficult for them because they were running out of ammunition and uh, so forth. One interesting question in the middle of all this, uh, which you essentially pose in your book, is whether or not in 1871 uh, Dr. Livingston uh, really needed to be found uh, or, or to what extent there was still interest in in him, I mean, his state of fame at that moment was kind of an kind of an interesting thing, and and in a sense, the public was 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 not clamoring for his for his rescue, in the way that we might now imagine it. Yeah, this was what was so clever about the idea, really, that he he had passed his sell-by date to a certain extent. In that, he had after his great Trans-Africa journey of the eighteen fifty-four six which had made him incredibly famous. He was the first white person ever to have um, walked from coast to coast of Africa. Um, after that, he went back to Africa to try to create the circumstances which might perhaps be the future of some colony there, which would be able to produce cotton um, and undercut the southern states of America. This was his dream, um, and which would then mean the slaves 
um, could be freed. Um, it was a, a mad idea in a way. He never found the place, but a lot of the people who were with him died, including his wife and the first bishop ever to go to Central Africa. And the expedition ended in complete fiasco. So when Stanley found him, he was not exactly discredited in that something of his religiosity and his um, character had sort of got into the public heart in a way that it could never be completely ripped out. But it was certainly, he was not, um, he was not really popular in the sense that he'd ever been. And it was Stanley's extraordinary achievement um, to actually write about saintly Livingstone in such a way that he created a kind of myth around this man that would last forever. I mean, I, I, I did my best to correct it and <laughs> to give an accurate picture of him. In the book but, that you yes, wrote? Yes, in, in my book I wrote all those years ago. Um, and to some extent among people who know, it, it has corrected it, but, but in, in the public scene at large has not really been affected by that. He is still saintly Dr. Livingstone. And Stanley, unfortunately, I mean, although I hope I will change it, may still be Stanley the Brute, but we're coming on to what makes, um, what was the problem for Stanley, which was that when he got back from this epic journey, 7,000 miles, he was not just dumped by his girlfriend, who was a very rich young American lady called Alice Pike, whose father owned two opera houses and masses of distilleries and so forth. Um, she couldn't wait for him, she told him. But he was also... Um, dumped, really, by the British government. They weren't interested in anything that he'd found and didn't want any kind of British interest in the Congo. They were fully engaged with a river further to the north called the Niger. And so when a, a man called King Leopold of the Belgians, King Leopold II of the Belgians, sent two people to see Stanley, and they offered him a contract to go back to build a road past the cataracts and trading stations along... Congo, and they offered him a salary, and this man said he was prepared to pay a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year on equipping him and doing everything that was necessary, and with nothing else really to do, or no other way of actually developing what he discovered, Stanley accepted this man's offer, believing that he was a genuine philanthropist who would um, treat the people of the Congo well. Hmm. And, of course, that proved not to be the case. It proved not to be the case. Stanley was, was on the Congo, working for Leopold, um, only for, um, from 79 to 84. Um, and so he was, he was there a mere sort of half dozen years. Um, now, the thing which made all the difference to the Congo, Leopold was losing money. His, his courtiers used to call it Congo delirium, the disease that he was suffering from. Here was the monarch of, the, of, of one of Europe's smallest countries who wanted to have the biggest colony anywhere on earth as his personal possession. Um, and the Congo clearly was just such a place. But it was, it was always doomed to lose money until something happened, which was that a vet living in um, Belfast in Northern Ireland um, wanted to improve the ride of his son on his tricycle. And he invented an incredibly clever thing, which was the inner tube. And almost immediately after this, large numbers of people became fantastically interested. He founded a company called the Dunlop Company. And the rest, as they say, is history. The bicycling, <laughs> um, the bicycling craze came, and the person who had most of the rubber in the world in the form of trees, um, the, 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 the sort of goo leaking out of these trees, was Leopold. They were mostly, at this date, on the upper Congo. Um, the only trouble was that Africans hated collecting it. 
stuck to their skin and you had to climb up the trees and it was revolting to get hold of and they tried to avoid it and so Leopold issued the most draconian orders to his um, his local officials who then sent out members of different tribes from far away who wouldn't mind doing disgusting things and they themselves and these um, henchmen of theirs went and cut off people's ears and hands and goodness knows what else to make them collect more rubber. And Stanley was appalled and horrified when this happened. But in the way that, you know, the owner of a dog that goes mad gets the blame, Stanley, because he'd actually built the trading stations and built the road and done the rest and made the whole thing possible in the first place, got the blame, really. I mean, people said, oh, if you hadn't done that, if you'd not created this horrible business, you know, if you'd not trusted Leopold, none of this would have happened which in a sense is true, but it's also true to say that it's, you know, since he had been sacked by Leopold because he'd refused to take away the land from the Africans and because he'd refused to follow a policy that actually was trying to dispossess them completely, um, it's even more unfair, really, to then blame him as oh. it subsequently happened. It's, it's like a, sort of a double blow of injustice mm. uh, dealt to, uh, to Henry Morton Stanley. I think that's right. I mean, I think the good thing, you see, is that because... I was the first person to get hold of all these papers in Belgium, um, this massive collection that they'd been sat on for 30 years. It came to me much more sort of powerfully in a way that when one reads these things, um, you know, saying um, that he always considered payment to be rental, um, and he said, um, your Belgian officers should not think of the, the Congolese as conquered subjects. This is all wrong. They're not subjects we who are their tenants. And he constantly wrote this kind of stuff um, until Leopold became exasperated with him and replaced him. Um, so, you know, this amazing journey of Stanley's. The British are merciless to, pe- to heroes who let them down hmm. in some way. Right. Plus, you, you mentioned in the introduction the possibility that, uh, and this is something that Stanley himself believed, that it was partly the jealousy of of other explorers uh, that perhaps ha- could have accounted for this uh, undeserved uh, reputation for, for, for brutality to be attached to Stanley's name. I think Stanley was very naive. You see, when he reported in the Indian Wars back in, back in the Nebraska, um, his editors said, you know, what we want is blood. We want gore. We want excitement. And I think that he didn't realize that, although every, every explorer knew that if you were attacked by Africans, you would be dead unless you shot back, um, and that they knew that the slave trade had made Africa unstable. Um, for example, General Gordon wrote to Richard Burton, the explorer, and he said, um, these things may be done. Africans may be shot, but this fact must not be advertised. And the problem with Stanley was that he, when he first came back from Africa, he wrote about the occasions on which he had had to shoot people. It was just a commonplace uh, that these things did happen. You could, for example, if you were being pursued by people who wanted to kill the members of your column or pick off the rear guard, the people who were coming along, who were, who were the stragglers at the back, who were carrying things, and you let, say, 100 people get really close, you might end up in a situation where you would have to, in order to defend yourself, kill a lot of people. But if you could pick off somebody at long range, the whole business would be stopped like that, and you, your, your column would, would get through, and so on. So this was a practical problem. And 
Of course, the argument has to be faced. The difficulty was, Stanley himself faced it. He said, our sin was that we came uninvited. Or, sel- or self- self-invited. 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 Yes. That was our fault. Um, but he did say then that it was not, our fault was not so great that we should have given up our lives. Um, and that's absolutely right. He was aware of the, the intense difficulty of the explorer's position, that people who thought that they were defending their land shouldn't really be shot on it. But at the same time, if you're an explorer, your raison d'etre is to explore. You can't just because people don't want you there at that particular moment give up completely or else you don't make the um, discovery. So other explorers did exactly the same as Stanley but never admitted it. Hmm. And Stanley was essentially, I think, very naive. Yes, he could have shown better discretion in what he talked about or how he talked about it. And you also talk of how his reputation ultimately was not aided uh, by his widow uh, after his death, who uh, maybe in some misguided sorts of ways uh, tried to maybe uh, salvage his reputation by sort of suppressing certain bits of information and in probably many ways ultimately made the situation worse. I think that's right. I think she would never, for example, she would never admit that he was illegitimate, for example. Um, She would never admit quite how dire his circumstances had been because she had a son by then. He was um, an adopted son, and she'd sent him to Eton, England's smartest public school, um, meaning private school. And um, she didn't want any of the other Eton boys to know that um, his adoptive father had been illegitimate. So she would send corrections to newspapers when true things were printed about Stanley. And this was foolish because Stanley's great achievement was that he had come from nowhere and he had clawed his way up out of really dreadful circumstances. And she just didn't permit this sort of truth to be known. And mm. Stanley, of course, was also extraordinarily good to people from his own class. Um, he took, for example, working-class young men with him on, on his greatest expedition. And he he gave many gifts to former servants, and his valets all adored him, wanted to come to his funeral and so on. And um, he, um, he, he this, if he if this had been known, um, it would have given an impression of a much more human sort of man. But instead, she carved his his African name Bula Matari, which was um, a big mistake. Um, this is called the Breaker of Stones. Um, onto his gravestone, which was granite, the hardest rock there is, um, and fostered that sort of public effort, which he had always put forward as a kind of defense of his vulnerability. She ought to have opened him up, really, much more and shown people the heart of the man. Mm. Well, and we could have learned uh, way back then maybe more of what was at the heart of his need to explore the world and in his words, to be freed from that shallow life which thousands lead in England where a man is not permitted to be real and natural, but is held in the stocks of conventionalism. And of course, Stanley manages to break free of that in amazing ways in this amazing story. The book again is called Stanley, The Impossible Life of Africa's Greatest Explorer. The book is published by Yale University Press. It includes uh, a, a handsome collection of, uh, of very, very intriguing photographs. 
including a now famous photograph of of a statue of Stanley, uh, which uh, fell and lay on the ground for for years, and sort of an image of his uh, sad reputation uh, rehabilitated to such a great degree in this great book. Again, my thanks to Tim Geale. Uh, for writing this wonderful book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about your very interesting work. My thanks to you. Thank you for having me.